Welcome, ladies and gents. What is up? I am Felix, and this is a party roulette. This is actually the first episode we've had since Bernie Sanders dropped out of the presidential race. R.I.P. to the boy. It was um, a very sad moment for all of us Bernie fans and political activists. And uh, yeah, I kind of got inspired to get back into it now and to do another episode after seeing the Black Lives Matter movement and uh, just a kind of resurrection in political anger in the States. So I'm back here again. And joining me is my good friend Logan, coming in all the way from Alaska. Uh, we actually met on the Bernie Sanders campaign in Iowa in January. You doing all right today, Logan? Yeah, doing great. It's good to hear your voice, Felix. I'm sorry I can't see you because I have limited internet up here. Oh, uh, man, I'm not looking too hot anyway. It's, all, it's a sweaty day in the studio. Is it hot there in it's not it's not too hot, but for some reason our studio just has no ventilation. So people come in here, they get interviewed, and it's like it's like the hot seat, you know. Oh yeah, well that's good actually. You want yeah, to get yeah, exactly, man. You know, nothing nothing gets past this here. Yeah, I'm freezing my ass off sitting <laughs> on the end of a dock. So you know, how did you get how thing. did you get in Alaska? You know, I just dude, I think like you, I was a little burned out after the Bernie campaign, and I started kind of looking at like some things I used to do to like think about like, well, you know, what can I do right now that just to sort of like lick my wounds and, and also not be just completely devastatingly broke. Yeah. I came up to work on an old fishing boat. I used to work on uh, back in my early twenties and then we're waiting for the fishing season to start on the 28th. And then I'll be out and about on the, out in the ocean and, and some of the other protected areas here as well. So it's fucking rad. I love Alaska, but I kind of wish I was in the mix right now in the streets with a lot of my friends but you know what you you can't you can't get them all i guess no nah, man especially because you're from seattle and from what i've heard seattle is really going mad at the moment with antifa right now yeah man i mean that's my uh that's my stomping ground i went to college literally inside i think the the autonomous zone at seattle central college which was a huge hotbed of activism back in the day and was also a big hot spot uh, in the lead up to the the infamous WTO protests in Seattle in 1999, mm. were you involved? In I those think protests? I guess, Well, kind of. I mean, I was there. I was uh, I was only like 15 or 16, um, but I went and got my first dose of tear gas. Nice. Uh, it's a special moment for every uh, man and woman, of course. All the activists alike. Yeah, I mean, I think like a lot of the the stuff that like a lot of people are going through now, being exposed to protests for the first time in the states. You know, there was a wave of this during Occupy almost 10 years, nine years ago, I guess. And now there's, it's happening again, even on a bigger scale. Uh, it also happened during the Black Lives Matter movement, obviously, in the, in around 2014. But people are getting exposed to what, like, kind of this sort of, like, level of state repression looks like as far as, you know, you're allowed to speak out, but only within certain bounds. And then if you... If you do actually take to the streets very much, you're going to get police repression. That's just how it works. But I think to most people, they don't really see protest as something relevant to them. So they don't really engage in that. And then they don't experience experience it. And it can be a really reflective moment. You know, I've worked in the past as a, as a nonviolent direct action, civil disobedience trainer. I was at Occupy Wall Street in New York, places like that. And I've just got to see that many times where people sort of step out of their comfort zone, they experience what it's like to be in the streets and it, it changes them. I think I was just fortunate that I, that happened to me when I was like 15. So 
you know, I went and sat down in an intersection in Seattle, the, the WTO ministerial for those of your listeners who may be less familiar, uh, was the first big public meeting of sort of at that time, the world trade organization was sort of the, the biggest symbol of kind of neoliberal corporate hegemony on a global level that superseded national sovereignty and environmental labor rights, stuff like that. Just and a big so, symbol for, uh, for capitalism, essentially. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Of course, back then, yeah. we weren't really we weren't really allowed to use the C word very much because, uh, you know, it just was very unpopular. Ah, I uh, see. But in the, at least in the States, globalization was the hot buzzword back then. That's the same shit, you know. Yeah, it's funny but, now um, because this is yeah. also why I wanted to speak to you about the, the protests right now and what's going on because you have like 20 years of experience working in activist movements, Occupy Wall Street, what you did after Katrina, all of this. And I feel like that with Occupy Wall Street and what you're saying about the WTO protests in Seattle, there was always a focus on economic oppression and how we need to break away from these corporations which are controlling our lives and forcing millions of people to live in poverty in the richest country in the world. This is mostly from an American context uh, I'm speaking about here. But then we've seen with like Black Lives Matter and these protests now about police brutality, it's much more of a, a discourse focused on racism and identity politics. And it's a question where at first I was quite skeptical of the whole movement. And I think a lot of it was my position as a, as a Bernie volunteer who like invested a lot of time and energy and emotion in the Bernie campaign and then seeing the whole country like mobilize overnight was almost like ah why like why the fuck weren't all these people knocking doors for Bernie? Then we would have won in a landslide. But then it's like I thought about that more, and I realized that was just my own personal kind of grief manifesting as some sort of tacit resentment for like what is ultimately really good activism and a protest movement, which is kind of unrelated to that and the in game of politics which Bernie was trying to play. But then I, I still feel like it's it's going to be difficult to really unite people and achieve policy change through a discourse that's focused on on race um and i do like wholeheartedly support the protests and if i was there i'd be out in the streets you know really at it all the time and i think it's fucking great to see all these young people getting politically engaged in whatever way that is and standing up to systems of power but i wonder in the long term if it's if it would be more productive to focus on economic oppression rather than racial oppression. I hear you. I mean, I think that, I think that's happening on some level and it inevitably will. We live in different times now than like what I was describing and the WTO. That was like 20 years ago. I was about 10 years after that. But in between there, we've had the black lives matter movement and stuff. And I think the, the global justice movement in in the late 90s that led to the WTO in the early 2000s. It was the biggest grassroots movement the world had ever seen all over the world. But there was some really strong critiques of activism back then as being not, not fair to race as far as like not really recognizing the ways that structures of racial hierarchy and oppression were, were evident within the movement. So there was a lot of reshuffling that happened back then and a lot of deep soul searching. And we haven't been back to the point until now, really, uh, that we are able to kind of really bring these two concepts together again, race and class. Mm. And I think MLK was doing that before he was killed. 
I think the the Bernie campaign to me, and actually, honestly, Felix, one of the reasons why I went to Iowa, why I got so excited about it, was because I felt like for the first time that was really happening. But, you know, it's like the movement had to do a lot of personal work to get to that point. You know, seeing Bernie surrogates at work, you know, amazing, amazing leaders like like Cornel West and Nina Turner. Nina Turner was fucking Turner. phenomenal, man. <laughs> yeah, I yeah. love somebody. Yeah. As a full stop. Yeah, and and that was the first time I felt like I was like, okay, this is really actually happening, you know. And you see like Bernie's popularity among among young people of color, and it was like partly, it's easy to racialize this stuff, but I think it's also a lot of it's just simply generational, obviously with the Bernie campaign. But an understanding that capitalism is is fundamentally problem, and that it's intimately tied to race. I don't know if the form that we know can exist one without the other. Mm. So I I feel like. That's a huge. That's been a huge stumbling block in the past, and I feel like we're finally overcoming that. You know, I wouldn't be surprised to see a lot more of that coming up with this movement. We never could have a successful grassroots movement of this level in the U.S. unless race was front and center. To be honest, you know, yeah, doesn't I'd mean it has so. to be. Yeah, I, I yeah. think you got a point because I think maybe I'm looking at it from like too much of a, where I was looking at it initially from too much of a political, pragmatic sense of all right, but how are we going to manifest this into policy? How are we going to unite the whole country? And it's like to actually get to a stage where the systems of power, the people in charge are going to listen to us whatsoever. There has to be an entire mass movement built up where people are angry and they're like near violent and they're just so pissed off, so fed up. And it doesn't even necessarily matter what is on the face of that. It's just... Like there was a Martin Luther King quote, which which really kind of best summed it up for me, which was a protest is the voice of the unheard. And it doesn't, you know, it's, I don't think it's necessarily about racism um, as much as it's about just oppression in general and suffering and poverty and racism, of course, but it's about so many other things. And like what you're saying, it's going to morph and shift into something else over the next few years. But yeah, it's great to see... Uh, America burning in some ways and fucking Seattle blocked off and there's an autonomous zone. And yeah. How do you think that's going to end by the way? It's been an interesting debate around that. It's really like this, we're in uncharted territory at this point. So because there's been so much sort of public acceptance of the protests been a lot of backlash too, but not as much as I thought there'd be. It seems like there's a lot of sort of understanding there. So it's going to look bad if the cops come in real hot and, it's really reminiscent. And I was just talking to another friend there in Seattle a few days ago who's been there every day. It's very reminiscent of Occupy Wall Street and the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone there. So I think one thing they don't appear to have is any sort of decision-making structure, which was a big problem at Occupy because although we had one or two decision-making structures, they were pretty dysfunctional mm. because nobody ever thought the protests would get that big. So it just really wasn't taken into account. And there was a lot of infighting over that. I imagine, you know, who knows? I think with groups like that, it's easy to become. There's a friend of mine, Matthew Smucker, who wrote a really great book about this, partly called Hegemony How To. He was another Bernie guy. But when when you have a protest like that, it's easy to shift from the from the focus, the injustice policy you're trying to change or whatever your demands are, to focus from that, to shift to simply the more prefigurative aspects of what you're doing, which is like your community you're building in the park or whatever or your autonomous zone your space and then become 
hyper-focused on maintaining that space or trying to create utopian society within it. And you kind of lose sight of what's going on outside and then you lose support from the broader public because they just can't relate to that as much. That happened with Occupy real bad. And it's also a symptom of police, this kind of police repression. When you're getting beat up by the cops every day, you're really trying to protest. It's really hard to maintain focus and not eventually become just protesting about your right to protest. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, so that, yeah, yeah. And most of the country doesn't protest, so they care less about that. Hmm. So hopefully this is that's different this time. You know, if, it, if they do like what they did with Occupy, there was a coordinated effort across different states and also Homeland Security. And they came they came in within a few days and tried to clear most of the big ones out. They hit us in New York at midnight. I was actually in charge of rapid response. Fucking hell, man. So I had set up a texting service so that we had thousands of people that could show up within an hour if they were texted. So Quest you, Love, the so, drummer from from the from one of those late night shows, was going by in a cab. Saw a bunch of police staging to raid the park and tweeted it out. We saw that, and then thanks to him, and then we hit that alert. And you know the cops moved in so quickly, so rapidly and thoroughly that it was hard to get people into the park to defend it. Yeah, to do civil disobedience, yeah. but some did. Um, they shut down the subways from Brooklyn. They did all kinds of stuff. But they also Jesus had clear Christ, orders man. in like not not to arrest people. They were trying really hard not to arrest people at that time. You know, they were very conscious of how it would look, the optics of it. So I would imagine the same in Seattle. That if they do come in, they'll be especially a liberal city like that. They're going to be very conscious of the optics. Who knows? Maybe there'll be some sort of negotiation, or I mean, maybe they'll just keep it as like a permanently squatted space, which would of course be badass. Yeah, there's a lot of examples of that. Like in uh, in Denmark, you have Christiania, which is like a, an autonomous zone oh, yeah. where the police aren't allowed to go in. In Ljubljana, you have uh, Metalkova, which is more of like a clubbing district, but it's also like the police are not allowed inside whatsoever. Um, there's a lot of examples like this in Europe. And I think most of it is born out of just socialist movements, which were allowed to continue because they weren't really harming anybody. And it's like, why would you go and start a fight where everybody's living peacefully? But yeah, man, that sounds fucking insane that you were having to get all the troops in. Like it's the last Star Wars film when everyone rolls up and it's yeah. like, you're not taking off flipping tents, man. <laughs> this is our campfire. Well, I, yeah, funnily, I, I was at Christiania, actually, that you just mentioned during the Copenhagen climate, COP15, I think, uh, back in 2010, I believe. People were trying to defend that. The police were moving in. I went there to check it out, and there was it was mayhem. There were people throwing Molotovs over the wall one way and tear gas going the other. And I'd never seen anything like that. I was like, "Holy shit!" In Denmark as well, you don't you don't expect the Danish to be so nuts. Yeah, man, it was hot there. It yeah. was like wow. Yeah, but nice. those cops were super mean too, man. Those the Danish police, man, they gave us a a run for our money. Yikes. <laughs> yeah, man. But so what's like, what do you think is actually the, the main thing which the protests right now can learn from the Occupy movement? Because ultimately in Occupy, it spread so far within the States, it spread to Europe as well. And it was, it was something where I think there was quite a clear policy agenda and a very strong message. And then a huge movement behind it, an aggressive protest movement. But then ultimately it kind of faded away and... You know, now it's just a part of history. So what what do you think is the is the critical failure of Occupy and how can the movement now learn from it? I don't know that Occupy actually failed. I think that 
there are some things that I wish had been different. You know, my perspective on that was mostly just from New York. You know, I really wish. Uh, sorry, hang on. A some background noise. The wild north, eh? Yeah, you know those planes that like land on water. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, with the with the big kind of boat wheels. Don't yeah, they're, they're freaking the boys. Um, what were we talking about? About, uh, <laughs> about how Occupy uh, could have done better. Oh yeah, I think I was saying I I don't really think that they failed necessarily. I I think that Occupy broke a lot of the the culture of political silence and apathy and uh depression and apathy that followed 9-11 that lasted 10 years occupy was literally two blocks away from 9-11 um almost like 10 years in a week afterwards or something and totally changed the politics again in my in my opinion i i think that it was coming on the back of another of other important things too like the arab spring there was a teachers labor uprising in wisconsin there was also a uh, and then before that, I think uh, Chelsea Manning's Cablegate WikiLeaks files and stuff like that, which honestly I think was probably like the most important uh, thing that's happened in, in decades. And you were heavily as involved as in that as well with uh, spreading the news about Chelsea Manning. Yeah, I was I was involved in uh, her support network uh, while she was in solitary confinement. And we didn't really have contact with her, but we were doing a lot of stuff on her behalf trying to create awareness and win more in the court of popular opinion before she was taken to military corps. Yeah, I think Occupy, if it was, I think the greatest success of Occupy is was it changed the debate in the U.S. around uh, income inequality and stuff like that. And it made it, for the first time, class was something that people could talk about openly. And there was a mutual understanding there, language around it that introduced the idea of the 99% versus the 1%. Mm. Yeah, it also, like, it, it created... Uh, dissidents and protests being political was a cool thing again for the first time in 10 or 20 years. So that was pretty exciting too. You know, people were celebrities are wanting to be seen at protests. There's some amount of co-optation that happens, but I think Occupy was pretty resistant to that. I don't know about this current moment, how it will be. I think it's important to see these as probably more as moments than movements. If you see them as a movement, it's easy to say like, well, it didn't accomplish anything. Yeah, I see what But you if you mean. see it as a yeah. movement, and a broader movement, then it's like, wow, okay, that accomplished a lot. You know, out of Occupy, we got uh, the Bernie campaign, basically. That was yeah, pretty thing. much. We have socialists in Congress now, you know. There's some things that were accomplished, although it's hard to point at specific policy stuff. It's not like Obama ever prosecuted the bankers. You know, for no, instance. of course not, mate. I mean, he was friends with them. Like They had dinner together a few times. He's never going to do that. Yeah. Have you seen um this Netflix documentary, The Final Year? No, it's mad. It's like it's like the you know the last dance the with Michael Jordan the new one. No man, I'm illiterate. You're really, you're I'm really culturally illiterate. You're out of the out of the loop <laughs> in Alaska up there. Yeah, dude, <laughs> I, I seen my internet here for like months. Okay. <laughs> right, well, there's this there's this new documentary which is all the rage on Netflix right now about Michael Jordan's last year at the Bulls and how they won the championship. Um, and it's a documentary, but it's it's in this very like highly dramatized format which is a bit much more dedicated to telling a story than accurately portraying the events and being yeah quite sensationalist um there's been criticisms of it as a documentary but they just released this one called the final year which is the final year of obama's presidency and what it was like in his team you know with uh 
I don't think Joe Biden's in it, but uh, John Kerry, Secretary of State. They've got the woman who's the ambassador to the UN. They've got his main speechwriter, who's that young guy. And the whole thing is being presented like, oh, these are the fucking champions of democracy. Like, oh, they're so oh, good, yeah. man. They're doing so much good stuff. And it's like, and the whole time is the backdrop of Trump and that like him getting more and more like support and traction. And they're all just looking at him on TV like, man. I don't understand this guy. Like, it's crazy. How does everybody like him? And it's like, because you're shit at your job because you left the country exactly the way you found it. And it, it like, trust me, like when you watch it, you'll be so infuriated because it's it's this idea and this like, this really pervasive idea of Obama as like, just a great guy, just a great dude. And he was trying his best. It's just, I began to so many arguments recently, like, you know, after Bloody Monday, when um, Obama, you know, made uh, made the calls to the Buttigieg campaign, the Klobuchar campaign, to get them to drop out and endorse Biden, the day before Super Tuesday, that was kind of the moment where I was like, "All right, fuck Obama," you know, really, really fuck Obama. And I've been trying to like spread awareness of that here and tell people about it. And they're like, "Oh no," but you know, Obama's still like way better than Trump. And I'm just, I started to think like. I, I guess he is, but in terms of how I view him as an individual, as a Bernie supporter, he's not worse than Trump. He's no, he is worse than Trump. Sorry, and he's he's just he is he harms the movement and any ability to change things and to grab power more than somebody like Trump does. Because there's always going to be an adversary in the Republican Party like Trump, but you actually need Democrats to be on our side and to support a left-wing candidate and people like Obama, Biden, they're ultimately just, just going to fuck that up as long as they can. Yeah. I think people are really of the more liberal or, or progressive light persuasion or are being driven mad by Trump. It's really, it's like, he's like a mind virus and, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and they can, they, they only like imagine like, Oh, like, Oh man, at least when Obama was president, things uh, felt, normal i felt sane things made more sense but that's like the peace of mind that they're wishing for it was like the peace of mind of somebody who's asleep or numb so yeah. or, or privileged or yeah. able to live in a, yeah, exactly. in a society where there's a lot of poverty because they're above that poverty line and they don't have to worry about yeah. it they don't have to see it yeah and i think it's i've been kind of like reflecting on that as like trying to figure out like what does white supremacy look like for how does it manifest? Where does it come from? And people who are otherwise well-meaning liberals, you know? Yeah. And I think that a lot of that has to do with this idea that the people who, who are culturally like us are, will always have our interests in mind, like the people in power. So Nancy Pelosi, she's so relatable to middle-class Americans. A lot of them who, who act, feel, and look like her. And, to those of us who know better, she's ridiculous. She's almost has almost reached like a clown-like status, you know. Yeah, the kneeling with the kente cloth recently and all that kind of stuff. She was protesting with um, the in D.C. and it's just like, if I saw her there, I'd fucking shout at her like, "What are you doing here? You're the exact person yeah. who we're protesting against. Get the fuck out of here." Yeah, and I think the benefit, like the the privilege of being able to consider those people to always hold on to the idea that they're looking out for you, that they have your best interests in mind. It's almost like it's impossible for white Americans to consider middle-class Americans to consider that, that the democratic party doesn't have their back when all the evidence 
points to the fact that they could give a shit. They serve the 1%. They don't care at all about you. But it's impossible to imagine otherwise because they are culturally like us. And so I think that's a, a white supremacy for the liberal class. Um, yeah. Because yeah, in, yeah. Order to have, in, order, in order to believe that, there has to be another group or other groups of people who don't look like you who are being oppressed. That's also why uh, I don't know. I've been thinking a lot more about the the difference and the incredible consciousness that's emerging around racial oppression and white privilege and all these things and the relative lack of consciousness about economic oppression. Because that was one of the things which I saw in Iowa was that people were very aware of um, this, especially at the University of Northern Iowa, where I was at for two weeks. A lot of young people, they would be very aware of the fact that they're a white person or a black person and what that meant. And, um, you know, just about the privilege in that sense or them being a victim in some ways. And it was great to see. But then if you talk to them about, you know, you're paying 20 grand a year for your sociology degree, that's like you being exploited. That's you being oppressed. That should not have to happen. I'm in Amsterdam. I, I study a good degree. I pay two grand a year. I get sick. I don't have to pay for that. I work a job. Minimum wage in a shit bar is 11 euros an hour, which is like $12 an hour. And it's like, I would say this and people would be like, ah, oh, yeah, man, but it's not really like that here, you know? And it's like, what the fuck are you talking about? Of course, it like, it's not like that here, but that's because the people in power decide it's not like that here. And it doesn't have to be that way. It's almost like if you speak to somebody about racism, you know, 60 years ago, and they go like, oh, you know, you don't have to like live in a country where you have to go to a different part of the bus or you don't have to, you know, go into different stores or be discriminated or shouted at in public. And it's like, oh, yeah, but it's not like that. You know, here it's different. And I think the biggest part of that is the fact that like since, you know, Truman, there hasn't really been any kind of strong economically progressive leadership in America. And... What that's meant is that the Republican Party has gone to the right, to the right, to the right. The Democratic Party has gone to the right, to the right, to the right. But then on social issues, cultural issues, they've carried on going progressive. And, you know, Obama made marriage, uh, gay marriage legal, a lot more focus on what it means to be a black person in America and how racism is systemic and all these things. And they've always conceded that because they know that that isn't where the real money is like they can still, you know, pay lip service to social movements and cultural movements and then carry on robbing people blind because their donors don't care about that. But now what we're seeing is like this insane racial consciousness, but I think economic consciousness is, a uh, is still like a good 10 years behind that, which isn't to say that like I'm against, you know, the racial consciousness, but it's just, uh, it's interesting to see how history is linked to those things and how the priorities of the Democratic Party have have governed that consciousness. Yeah, they don't, well, they don't want you to tie the two of them together. For Not sure. at all. I mean, <laughs> that's why King was assassinated in the end or when he was, you know, it's like, whoa, hey, you know, like, uh, because you're right. And and I think that about the right-left thing, it's, you know, and we I think we were talking about this a lot when we were canvassing, you and I was like, there's this culture war happening between the right and the left, but really the, the real war is the class war, which is happening from the up and the down between, you know, the, those in the top and those in the bottom. 
And the, the right-left culture war is used a lot as a distraction. If you start really connecting the two classic race together, then then we're in uncharted territory. I honestly, I would maintain hope. I think that's happening finally, mm-hmm. at least on the grass, the street level. It's not going to be happening much in the mainstream media, but in the end, you know, fuck them. They we're, we're living in the hell world created by <laughs> partly by, by CNN. Corporate fucking media. We knew it was happening for decades. We fought against it, and you know. But the the cooptation is probably another indication of that. Is like obviously pretty thick with this with this moment. There's just like a every fucking corporation trying to sell something. It's making ads about Black Lives Matter or whatever. And it's yeah, like, man. It's a little bit like fuck. It's off. hard to imagine how that you can't just see that it's a like a blatant money grab. But you know, uh, nobody wants to be. Nobody wants to look like the bad guy. That's a disturbing aspect of capitalism, but I think it's also an, it can be considered maybe an encouraging sign that there's some grassroots power there, but will it be co-opted into the point of being meaningless? I don't know. I guess we'll, we'll wait to see. Yeah. It's definitely something you've got to be aware of. Like I was seeing, um, a lot of wall street bankers, like there's this one guy, I can't remember his name, but he was really one of the chief, architects of the 2008 financial collapse i think i can't remember if he was the ceo of one of the huge banks that got bailed out um and he did a post you know for his for his bank social media of him like kneeling down on like the trading floor and it's like black lives matter it's like mate you were like you should be in jail right now because you robbed millions of dollars from regular black people in america and now you have the audacity to pretend like you're somehow an ally of this movement. And the thing is, like, it's there's also been like uh, a lot of Republicans coming out in support of it, and companies, and you know, like every single corporation is doing a post, like, yes, we are, we are Jello, and we support Black Lives Matter. It's like, all right, cool, but it, I don't think it should be something which is just kind of blindly bought into, because when it's like what you're saying, the difference between a moment and a movement. And I think it's good to view it as a moment in order to not get disheartened if it doesn't go the way you want it to go. Um, but just because it's a moment in that sense, in in a, in a sense you don't want to get disheartened, it doesn't mean that it can't be a part of a broader movement. And to make corporations and basically anybody be able to be an ally just by paying lip service I mean, oh that's encouraging i it's something where like i would rather the people who are involved in it directly be very conscious of what's going on and that like actually if somebody like that is saying that you say no fuck off these are the reasons why you can't just say oh now i support black lives and i support black people i'm against racism when everything your corporation has done over the last 50 years has helped contribute to that systemic oppression. So yeah, I, I'm more of the of the camp of just like if if you're not really with us, then then fuck off. Like you know, we don't actually want your help. We don't want your support. Um, but yeah, it's, again, it's a it's not too much of a big point. But oh no, I think that that's that's on point, and I think that there's a generational thing there too. Maybe like I I think in my generation, so many of us fought so hard just to get sort of some systemic recognition of like oh you know like like racism exists and then like a lot of people my age they see that they're like oh man this is great but i think 
you're a little bit younger than me. Pete, folks even younger are going to be more like looking at this. It's like we got to go so much further, you know, this is, which is good. Yeah. It was funny because there was a, there was protests here and I, they, they got announced like the day before or two days before it happened. And all of a sudden everyone I knew was going to this protest and people were asking me on the day, like we had a meeting for uh, the radio, for the social media and everyone in the room was going and they were like, are you not going? Like, I thought, you know, you really cared about us politics and all this. And, you know, don't like, why don't you want to go? I was like, well, I'm, I'm a bit busy. And like, I just, I didn't feel the, the need to go to this in this moment because I'm not in America right now. And I, I didn't want to, do something just because it was the thing to do on that day just because like my friends were saying oh like aren't you coming and it kind of seemed like that amongst people here while that was happening on social media and while it was very big everyone was talking about it and it was something people were sharing quite a lot but then when it comes down to like when this falls away from your focus of what is cool on social media then, you know, you won't say anything about it for months and you won't share anything about it. You won't start discussions about it with people around you because it's no longer the trend. And that's something I really want people to be aware of. That like, okay, you know, now you're getting conscious of racism. Why are you getting conscious of racism? It's because hmm. it's now the social media trend. It's not, you yeah. know, because you should question your own commitment to it and your own ideas of what's going on and try and reshape them constantly and not just like read an Instagram post and be like, oh, okay, now I understand white privilege. And it's like, no, you have to spend years like learning about it and understanding it and redeveloping your opinions, being critical of common opinions, developing new ones. And it's, yeah, that was something I didn't like about it as well was the kind of like, oh, like I also felt this pressure to do a post about it on Uber Radio. And I'm, you know, people were saying to me, are we going to do a post? We can do a post. And I was like, like, no, like we'll, we'll do some podcasts about it. We're going to do one about black feminism. I'll do one with my friend Logan and talk to him about the movement and Occupy and various other things. But I don't want to just do something to pay lip service. You know, it, I feel like it just takes away from the whole point of it, of how raw it's meant to be, how authentic and how, yeah, it, it just, it felt a bit forced, a lot of it. Yeah, I hear that. I, I definitely feel you on that. You know, what do I have to add to the, to, you know, like around racist? Well, for one thing, like I'm a white guy, you know, so not much. And then also there's a lot of virtue, virtue signaling going on. right? Now, oh, man, you know? it's insane. <laughs> it's, a bit, it's a little bit like with I coronavirus as well. That. And now this is like, oh, man, I've never seen anything like it. Yeah, so I just recently like went back to social media. I put something up on Instagram yesterday. It was just like, "Hey, like you guys know where I stand." And I'm sorry, I'm in Alaska. I'm not there with you, but stay in the streets. You know, people got to stay pissed off. I think that's really important. Stay mad. You know, stay angry. All this cooptation and stuff. It's like they want you to stop feeling angry. You know? Yeah, they kind of want to. Like that was the thing about the statues. It's been it's been really good to see the a lot of these statues come down, and it's definitely changed the way that I've thought about them and. But it's, it's all, you know, they'll always concede on the symbolic stuff first. And they'll always be like, oh, yeah, we'll get rid of the statues. Aren't you happy now? Isn't that what you wanted? Yeah. And it's like, nah, man, we wanted like equal rights. We wanted like a, a whole bunch of shit. But you'll give us, you'll take away the statue of Robert E. Lee. Fantastic. But yeah, man, it was, uh, I wanted to hear more about what happened to you in Nevada as well. Because obviously, when I left Iowa to come back to Amsterdam, you drove 
to uh, Nevada with um oh with Jake yeah Jake. yeah with Dude, Jake yeah. how was that yeah we got a few minutes want to get into that I guess yeah okay. man fuck it we go a while okay cool awesome yeah um yeah so so after uh after canvassing so for the listeners uh Felix and I were canvassing together basically for a month in Iowa right it was and quite so quite a time in in the world yeah you were a legend there man oh man oh my god you were a legend as well it was it was a legendary time we were all legends and then the fucking Buddha well, campaign and came in and made it all null and void a little bit yeah yeah but you know what that they were good times oh man um, it was it was such an experience and it was so funny as well because like this is my first time doing any kind of political activism and i was looking at you and mcnair who'd been doing it for like 20 years and I was like oh man you have like this is so exciting for me like I've never done this before this must be really normal for you guys and you were both like nah man this is the first <laughs> time we've ever been close to actual power this is fucking insane and then that kind of crystallized to me how important this moment in history was and now it with the aftermath it feels like oh that was that was just a great experience for myself and other people around me but if he'd won, then it would have truly been like a historical moment. It would be something they'd look back on in twenty years and be like, "This was where it fucking began." Like this was yeah, the man, saving was... of the world. <laughs> yeah, I really felt that way, and you know, I still think that we don't know. You know, the the future is opaque, and that could be it could be in the end that that made a huge difference. I know his twenty sixteen campaign did in a lot of ways, but yeah, man, I remember one time. I think. A uh, story I've told many times is the way that, uh, Felix, we were out in that, like we drove out, Cal sent us out to knock doors in some suburb and yeah, like, yeah. In the middle of a blizzard. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we were sitting there like the snow was so thick you could barely see. And we were sitting there like, and it was freezing cold and windy too. And, and it was like, it was like minus got, 20, like, man. It was fucking stupid. Yeah, it, was crazy. <laughs> it was dark and, as well. And then we, we got it. We got a text on our phones at the same time that said, like, from, like, the Bernie campaign, like, automatic thing that just said, like, hey, do you have a minute to do something for Bernie? <laughs> and, and you were like, you were like, you were like, man, I'm I'm doing the maximum possible right now. Yeah, man, I would get that a lot. Like, you'd get calls all the time because when you're in the list, they'll just, they'll bug you nonstop. And I'd I'd be like three hours into knocking doors, just been told to fuck off like three times in a row by Trump supporters, and I get a call like, "Hi, this is um this is Mac from the Bernie campaign. I'm out here in Massachusetts, and I was wondering if you'd um be able to do some phone banking for Bernie or maybe some texting." And I'm like, "Yeah, man, like I'm I'm out here in in, in the suburbs of Cedar Rapids knocking on doors. Like I I think I'm a bit busy." And the guy's, "Oh, okay, man, no worries. I'll catch you later." And then next day, same thing, different person. <laughs> Dude, you were unstoppable. I had to buy this guy uh, winter boots, man. You just had like... Oh, uh, yeah, those boots are lovely. Like tennis shoes. Yeah, yeah. Sliding around in the ice and stuff. Yeah. Falling over. And then I think when we were out in that blizzard, I got like one person to commit to caucus, and you got like six. Ah, oh, man. You were too you kind. Just, you killed. You slayed. Yeah. It was, uh, it was, man, it was the accent one. And that, that blizzard especially was so funny because like when I'm doing it, or when we're doing it during the day, it's like, okay, people are kind of expecting people to come when you're doing it in a blizzard at 8 p.m you knock on the door and people are like who the fuck could that be 
and then you open the door and like for me when I was there talking with a British accent they would just look at me like I wasn't even there and, and I'm just there like <laughs> and they're like are you a Bernie supporter and they're like are you British and they've like a lot of them had never met like a European person before especially at the University <laughs> of Northern Iowa they were like I've never actually talked to a European person before because they a lot of them haven't left Iowa and like you know how many Europeans come to Iowa not very many uh so I think that was a, a big selling point for when I was campaigning. Yeah, that's. I think it, more than that, what, you also had a. You're a good canvasser, man. You had a. You, you had a really good grasp of the issues. Iowa was crazy. So yeah. So moving on. So we went when that, after the Iowa caucus happened. Jake and I decided to drive to to Nevada because that was the the next in between Iowa and Nevada was New Hampshire was going to happen, but there was already like a whole second column of Bernie volunteers and. New Hampshire, so we decided to go to yeah. Nevada. And New Hampshire was looking um, pretty secure for Bernie, so Nevada was more of a toss-up state. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There was still some like fingernail biting for sure around New Hampshire. I remember, but Nevada was definitely more of a toss-up. So Jake and I drove down there. We drove through this another crazy, insane blizzard—the most crazy blizzard I've ever been in. Driving over the Rocky Mountains that like got like eleven thousand feet. Was that almost like four thousand meters or something? It was crazy Boot filled up with, with bernie stickers and and fucking yard signs yeah so we had all <laughs> our a mission from there. god i love jake so much that i get so much affection for him over that trip that mm. whole experience but he was traveling with he just had all his clothes and everything in a laundry basket whenever we showed up at somebody's house house to sleep he'd just walk in with his <laughs> overflowing laundry basket but everything like a proper homeless person <laughs> 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 mind if i put these in the dryer real quick sorry <laughs> they're a bit wet still <laughs> he's amazing man he's such a good canvasser too uh and then we got to las vegas though and it was like instant vacation man it was just like unbelievable after being in iowa and the freezing oh, yeah, cold man. las vegas isn't it it's like the 70s every day it was so warm and sunny and um and then we were just walking around blissfully walking around these neighborhoods just knocking on doors everyone was really supportive you know bernie was so fucking popular in las vegas sometimes people would chase us down on the street and be like how do i show up where do i go uh and they had they made it a little easier for people there in nevada uh because people could go vote early instead of go to the caucus yeah so but then eventually after a few days we fell in with this couple other people who were working on a they were like hey we're doing uh we're trying to win these caucuses on the las vegas strip and we were like what's that and it turns out that there's seven of these caucuses that happen on the las vegas strip and they're only for people who work on the strip or within a couple miles of it so it's mostly for hotel and casino workers it's something that's been negotiated with between the unions and the and the state governments or the party they're very hard to organize for unless you have union support you know mm. hillary one Bernie Hillary beat Bernie with them uh, in 2016. The union, the biggest union in Nevada is the culinary workers union, yeah. which is represents the, the local there represents the most of the hotel and casino workers that are unionized, the housekeepers, uh, people who are cleaning the rooms, you know, between guests and stuff. So that was uh, sort of this like whole part of the, Nevada puzzle that wasn't being tackled at all by the Bernie campaign. They just had no strategy for it because the union was really strong against Bernie. 
and they were secretly telling their union members to go for Biden nice. because of who knows what politics, but that union has the best health care plan for a union could have. And I think the union leadership didn't want to lose that as a bargaining chip by getting Medicare for all for their members. So they were also tied to the Democratic Party in the state because they're power brokers. So Harry Reid probably had something to do with it. Anyway, with this one organizer from Iowa, this guy who was a constituent organizer there had been working on those satellite talks up there showed up and he recruited me and Jake and another guy the first night, I think. Here, and, and he just said, hey, man, let's go down and uh, let's go try to canvas to talk to these casino workers. It was like, OK, that sounds fun. So we went down there and we were behind the uh, the Bellagio, which is the biggest casino in Las Vegas. Dude, the Bellagio with the fountains. Like, yeah, 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 but yeah. like eight thousand people work there or something. You know, it's just a huge labor force just there. And so we were out behind the parking lot for the parking garage for the employees, and we were trying to we were trying to canvass them as they're coming in and off shift. All these housekeepers and stuff. There was a language barrier for most of us that didn't speak Spanish, but we were just writing down names, phone numbers, trying to do you support Bernie? Do you support Bernie? Do you support Bernie? You do? Okay, here's your phone number. We're going to talk to you. We started building a list. We got kicked out immediately, uh, got kicked out again by the security there. And then we proceeded to get kicked out of almost every single major no casino way. in Las Vegas over the next 10 days or week, That's week and beautiful. a half, two weeks, something like that. Yeah, it was crazy. And we started to build our volunteer team. We eventually took over. We were all volunteers. There's one paid organizer who had basically gone rogue from the campaign. And we eventually had so many volunteers that we took over an entire field office in Las Vegas to the point that all the staff no left. No way. Like for the last few days, they all just left. And we had this whole office. And why, we had a core group why, why of did they leave? People. Because the size of our, our, of our volunteer group had gotten so big. And, and the campaign had no strategy for these casino caucuses, but they were very important. Like they represented 2% of the state total. Yeah. And the, and everybody knew that CNN and MSNBC, all the big networks, were going to be inside the Bellagio, inside the big, the biggest, the biggest casino caucus, and they were going to be broadcasting live. And it was going to be a big message around: here we are in Nevada, and the biggest union, their members, their grassroots, their rank and file has has turned away from Bernie Sanders because they don't want to lose their union health care. It was going to be a big message for people who are against medicare for all we wanted to win those so that it was then unassailable within the labor movement to say like oh no no no!" like even the rank and file union members with the best health insurance want medicare for all because it's the best and so yeah and and so we we worked like crazy i've never worked so hard in my life and we built we within a few days we had a list of several hundred casino workers and then that just grew and grew and grew we had to bring in more volunteers we were going to other field offices to steal volunteers we'd bring them over to our office that we'd commandeered and we'd get them on the phone going through these phone lists that we were creating and stuff like that um and then then we kept sending out these teams it was like a combination of like canvassing and direct action we would we had these big charts on the wall with all the casino locations we had little post-it notes for every person on our team and we'd, we'd send them around. We were like mapping them out on the wall and then we'd send them out. And so we had notes of like, okay, this person's been kicked out of the Bellagio, the Caesars Palace and the, okay, let's send them to. Send Treasure them to Island the MGM Grand. Yeah, yeah. They'll be all right there. Yeah. <laughs> haven't been seen yet. It was, 
it was freaking wild, man. Um, and we were getting, sometimes union guys were coming out and shouting at us and chasing us off and stuff. And you're like, fuck off, man. Clash trader. Yeah, it was crazy. And then, and we didn't think we'd win any of them. We originally tried to focus on a couple of the smaller ones, but we mostly ended up focusing on the end on just the ones where we could, where we were able to canvas people. So about halfway into this, a friend, another friend of mine, uh, uh, he's a friend now, but I didn't know him at the time. He showed up uh, from Seattle and he, he said like, Hey, uh, can I help? And I said, sure. What do you, what's your experience? He said, well, I work at Starbucks and I was like, okay, well let's go check out some of these Starbucks stores inside of the casinos and see if we can canvas some of the workers there. Maybe they'll go caucus. And I said, okay. So we had a little strategy about that, but that was really slow going inside of the casinos. It's way too hard. So eventually we were, we were leaving one day and there was this big line of cab drivers hang big line of taxis hanging outside. And we both kind of like had the same realization at the same moment. It was like, we got to organize these taxi drivers. I bet they can do these caucuses because they technically do work on a strip, you know? Mm. So we started talking to some of them and they're pretty receptive. Um, and then eventually we found out that we could go to the airport where all the taxi drivers, hundreds of them gather before they get deployed into the airport. Oh, and so there's this big parking genius. lot underneath the airport that's just got hundreds of cabs in it. And we just spend all day there. We had volunteers there all day long. You could talk to them for hours. And so we started getting all this support and excitement amongst taxi drivers, you know? Who it's are then like, going to chat to people. Oh, man. Nobody, and, and nobody'd oh. ever organized taxi Bro, drivers. You're a genius. Vegas, They're going to they then the chat to job. the passengers about how fucked up life. Oh my God, man. Oh yeah. And they have these, they have these like uh, message, like WhatsApp groups that they, that they communicate with each other with. And there's, there's this like group class solidarity there already, you know? Yeah, definitely. And so then they were just sharing our messages and our flyers on there. And, and we eventually kind of identified several casinos where they could show up, where they would be able to park very hard for them to do it because they have such bad jobs a lot of them are constantly monitored by the companies that they get the cabs from but we identified these places they could go and but they had good parking and to get into these caucuses and dude i mean they flipped at least one of those caucuses Jeez, and man. they uh they fucking my favorite story was i was waiting outside of one of the caucuses at it was at the um mandalay bay casino and uh escorted a cat taxi driver in this guy named Jamal. Uh, he was an African uh, immigrant. He didn't know what a caucus was three days before that. He was so excited to just actually have his voice heard that he went into this caucus. And it turned out that at that one, the captain that we had, the volunteer who was supposed to be in charge of it on the inside had flaked out. And so there was nobody to read the speech during realignment uh. when, the, when the voters in the caucus get an opportunity to to change their mind or to go to one side or the other, depending on how things are playing out. And so that was a, that was a big problem. And then, and he just stepped up and he said, I'll read this. I'll read this speech. Give me I'll speech, do this. Man. No problem. And he, Steps and he fucking up. nailed it. He, he oh. made a beautiful speech. And the, the person who had given the speech before him for Tom Steyer, who was a big problem for us in Las Vegas was actually Tom Steyer's daughter. No, they're representing him and she gave her speech and then he stepped up. Jamal gave his and Bernie prevented at that point, 
and his speech prevented Tom Steyer from gaining uh, critical numbers in that caucus and gaining any delegates. And I watched Tom Steyer's daughter walk out of there in tears, you know, uh, and that's a fuck because a billionaire, <laughs> you know, a billionaire being shut down by a, a Las Vegas taxi driver who makes 25 grand a year. Oh, that's stunning, man. Who didn't know what a caucus was three days earlier. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, that's the beauty of democracy right there. And then oh, another goodness. caucus that they, they, they took completely that would have otherwise the whole thing would have gone to sire. But so that was, it was an, it was an amazing time The the, all the news media and the Bellagio, instead of getting to watch their almost, almost pre-scripted story of the union members fucking Bernie Sanders and going against them. Uh, instead, what they saw was that the, the union members who were bust in by the union who were wearing their union t-shirts turned around and at the last minute walked across the floor of the room and joined the Bernie contingent. And what were the results um, for the, for those strip caucuses? Uh, there were seven caucuses. Uh, we won five and we tied one. We lost one. Jeez, and we man. were supposed to lose. We were supposed to lose every single one. Mate, fucking fair play. Because I, I remember seeing this story on CNN like the day after about how all these culinary workers had were meant to go for an establishment candidate like Biden and then went to Bernie and it was surprising. I just kind of glossed over quickly. I was like, oh, that's cool. I was more gassed about the fact that Bernie had won Nevada like this, but I had no idea that you played such an active role in that, man. Fucking fair play. It was volunteers, man. It was an amazing synergy that happened there. Uh, and then we tried to kind of recreate some of that in Arizona. Some of us went to Arizona afterwards and we we did a similar thing there and took over a field office. But uh, it was just Arizona was much more difficult. And then, of course, the, the COVID thing happened yeah. before that. And then he dropped out. But, and that was the, the tragedy. Yeah. Yeah, but Las Vegas was incredible, man. It was just, it was so cool to see. I really felt like the movement was coming together at that point. And then, you know, obviously that victory was, was incredible. You missed a hell of a, a victory party oh, there. Oh, I bet, man. That's a real victory party, not like the one we had in, in Iowa, where it's like, oh, do you think we'll get the the results oh, now? Oh, my God. What about now? What about what about three days from now? No, <laughs> man. I got back to Amsterdam, and I still didn't have the fucking results yet. And that was four days later. And they just, there was oh at some point God. they were just like, yeah, yeah, we don't know who won. It's like, what the fuck does that mean? Oh yeah, it doesn't really matter. It's like, all right, cool, man. Cool. Slap that was face. so fucking painful. Yeah. yeah. Were you, were you in one of the caucuses there in Iowa? Did yeah, man. I was in the, uh, one of the satellite caucuses. I was, uh, um, I was in Kirkwood Community College the whole day. I mean, you dropped me off there in the morning. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That, that, that fucking caucus day, February 3rd, I'll never forget that, man. It was like we were all going to war. Like, I was I was getting dropped off at this random community college, just like no plan, just going to talk to people all day. And you were like, I'm driving two hours north to this middle of fucking nowhere, and I'm going to try and convince Trump supporters to come for Bernie. And it was like, good luck, man. See you on the other side. <laughs> <laughs> it was such a cool vibe, man. I mean, caucuses are pretty dumb, but it it makes for a very fun political uh, time, for sure. Yeah, it's it's yeah. Oh man, it, it requires so so much more intense uh, intense organizing. God, yeah. The one I was at in Iowa was like it was such a small town, man. It was sad. It was like it was so economically depressed, and people were there was just Trump flags everywhere and Trump signs. 
I knocked a few doors and then realized that I was kind of like risking my life. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> so yeah, I, was yeah, like, yeah. I was like, well, uh, I'll just go back for the caucus. And so I did. And there was one Bernie supporter, you know? Yeah. And I said, it was like, there were no young people in this town. I was like, I was like, where's everybody? And she said, well, they're mostly dead. So it was like, that's a bit, that's a bit. It was, harsh it was literally in, inside, inside the senior center. You know, everyone was very old. I, the only guy that was, that was undecided. I was trying to win over was 90 years old. Jeez. Seen some shit. But he was cool. I made friends with him. But he still didn't go for Bernie. When the realignment happened, he he didn't want to move his walker. So he said, I'm going to stay here. <laughs> like, Stides didn't have enough delegates. I, I, I don't want to get up, man. <laughs> it's a, that's a long-ass walk to the other side of the room. Man. Yeah, I love that guy, though. But, yeah, I, I think, I don't know, like, it's hard to imagine electoral politics being any more interesting. Oh, man, uh, it was such a fucking... Like I remember us in the campaign office every year. Like I'm, I'm happy to hear that you took over the one in Vegas. Because when we were in the one in Iowa, it was like me, you, and McNair would go to the pub and just be like, "Oh man, we could do a way better job of running this place." <laughs> oh man, Get fucking yeah. pencil pushes, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, everyone was really concerned about their numbers. I think. Oh God, yeah, yeah, yeah. the numbers, them. man, the numbers. Yeah. You got to report uh, your numbers. What numbers, man? There's no numbers. It's all about connection, bro. Yeah. In Nevada, I think there was a lot less pressure on the organizers because they were accomplishing all of their numbers. Yeah. So it was like. Yeah. yeah. I feel like actually it was, um, that was one of the critical mistakes, I think, in the campaign was like focusing so much energy. Like, I think. Like there was one point where I was figuring out, like I was learning more about the structure of the campaign and how it was organized. And there was like a, like over 200 staffers for Bernie in Iowa who'd been there. Some have been there for like six months, most of them for at least like two months. And then in New Hampshire, there was like, you know, maybe half that and Nevada, like a quarter of that. And in South Carolina, basically nothing. And it's like, you know, you have to put, if you put that much, that much of your resources in one state, which is always going to be a toss up, and it's always like you're fighting against so many other candidates. So I understand it's important to win it, but I think they really just fucked up with South Carolina and not putting any effort into trying to win it, not even trying to get the Clyburn endorsement. And then seeing how instrumental that was for the entire election. That was the most consequential state. It just like, it, I really feel like they could have won it, but they just accepted the fact like, oh no, South Carolina's black. That's gonna go to Biden, and that that definitely didn't have to happen. Like if if you know there'd been a big targeting of minority communities and youth, black people in South Carolina, I think it, it easily could have gone to Bernie. There just wasn't the the effort. Yeah, yeah. I mean, God, we could. I definitely agree with that. And you know, by the time we got to Arizona too, there was just no strategy there either. But I think that. I don't know. We could relitigate this stuff a lot. You know, I don't know how you feel these days, but took a while to get over it. Point. A lot of PTSD. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Super yeah, Tuesday man. was I mean, one of the roughest nights of the year. Yeah, that was that was just mind blowing. Yeah, and I I was disappointed he didn't go after Biden more. You know, mm. like that was the the bit where I think I definitely felt a bit betrayed, a bit like all right. 
the moment where it really crystallized for me was the debate before Super Tuesday Part 3, before Arizona and Ohio and all this. And I was like, right, he won Super Tuesday. He won Super Tuesday Part 2. This is it. This is the fucking Alamo. Like, this is the last chance Bernie has to stand up for himself, hold Biden accountable and expose him as an absolute shill. And in that two-hour debate where Bernie had the floor for ages, there was like eight minutes where he properly attacked Biden. And it was just, it was so weak. And he let Biden chat so much shit. And whenever he'd want to like correct something, like you could see how much it took from Bernie to do it. He was like, no, Joe, 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 no, that's not true, Joe. That is like, not like, shut the fuck up, you absolute lying neoliberal piece of shit. Obviously, you wouldn't use those words, but like that should be the energy. That should be the, the the amount of contempt that you have for a person like this. And there was just that was never never seen once from Bernie. And I think it really illustrated to me how Bernie's rhetoric when he's speaking to his own people, to the to the activists, to the left wing people, the the outside game, is really powerful and revolutionary, and he's strong. And then when it's the inside game, when he has to go and do a debate or have a conversation with a politician over the phone or say something about a fellow politician in an interview, he's scared and he's weak and he was never prepared to really hold these people accountable. And that for me was a, a bit of a reality check, you know? Yeah, indeed. I mean, I think that it, it doesn't take any disappointments in Bernie's performance at that point. They don't, for me, take away from the how proud I am of that movement at that time and, and all the people that worked so hard on that campaign and the surrogates. Oh my God. Just seeing Nina Turner speak or, or Ilhan Omar came to our office in Las Vegas and just, I mean, she, her and this guy who was one of the founders of the DSA, this Puerto Rican activist, Jose de la Luz, like just them speaking for an hour. It made the, I would have worked a year to be there for that. And again, like they, there's almost like, to me, like one thing I experienced on that campaign, both with the volunteers and the surrogates at times was it almost took on like a, and I'm not a, I'm not a religious or very spiritual person. Like I'm, I'm an atheist really, but it, it almost made me reassess that, you know, like there was an energy about like a, a, a passion and a, 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 almost like a, like a, like a cultural force of like, kind of like, like the desire to restore our humanity through our politics. Yeah, man. It was transcendental. It was just like... Each other. Oh, my God. Yeah. Such a vibe. I mean, you e thought vibe. Nina Turner... Nina Turner could ring... She would ring a crowd like a bell, you know? It was like you could just feel it. Yeah, I, I've seen a lot of public speaking. I've never experienced anything on that level. And it wasn't just her. There's something there. It was healing, I think. On that positive note, I think we should uh, wrap up this podcast because our studio here in Amsterdam is closing, unfortunately. I'd love to continue this chat, but uh, yeah, man, it's been great catching up with you, boy. You too, Felix. Yeah, man, let's do it again sometime or at least catch up privately on the phone or something, man. All right, Chief. I'll catch you later, yeah? Have fun with, uh, with the fish okay. and the seagulls. Very good. Okay, right, thank you.